Acts chapter number 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you, and to your children, and to all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And so tonight, um, I'm going to preach on believer's baptism. So, it's been the last two weeks looking first at covenant theology and just sort of an overview of what the baby baptizer um, groups would, would confess, that they believe that there is one covenant of grace that stretches across the entire scripture and that with that covenantal framework, we read the Bible. And so um, since we're all under one covenant of grace under di different administrations, the rite of circumcision, being the token of the Old Testament, was given to, to boys at the age of or uh, eight days old. Then it's just switched over to the new co covenant or the new administration. And it's the same, it's a rite similar, but signifying the same thing. So Israel equals the church, circumcision equals baptism. And um, both rites bring you into the covenant community. Well, all this hinges on whether or not that framework is accurate. And the Bible does teach that there is uh, God's elect, that God's people are saved by grace through faith from the beginning all the way, uh, all the time, that God saves his people by grace through faith. They're one people of God, but that's not the same thing as saying there is one overarching covenant of grace. And so that's how they see baby baptism. It's not that they say, well, here's an example of a baby being baptized, and over here's an example of a baby being baptized. They're saying, no, this is our, our theology, and we believe this about the Bible, and so we're going to lay it on top of the Scripture, and then we don't have to find examples of it because it fits our framework. Um, circumcision is not baptism, though. If you examine circumcision with the biblical evidence, you find that it's not the same thing. Circumcision is not baptism. It signifies different things for different purposes. In order to make that continuity, circumcision and the covenants have to be flattened down. And you have to ignore things or just say, well, that's not applicable anymore, or, or flatten it down to make it mean something spiritual in order for everything to line up, make that continuity fit. It flattens the old covenant and the new covenant to make it the old administration and the new administration. If there's a new covenant, then my question is, what's new about it? Other than just switching signifying keys, uh, what would be new about the new covenant if it's one covenant of grace? It also makes Israel and the church one and the same, and it just... It, it, it takes away from what those covenants were, multiple covenants in the Old Testament, and it does all this in order, I believe, to make infant baptism fit. 
if, if infobaptism had never come into the picture, I don't think there would have been this framework of covenant theology. Uh, but this framework, I believe, now they'd probably disagree with me, but I believe that this framework was constructed in order to justify infant baptism. Because if we just go from what the biblical data says, then we won't find baby baptism. Steve Willem, um, he's a Baptist um, theologian, he said, covenant theology, discussion of the newness, fails to reckon that in the coming of Christ, the nature and structure of the new covenant has changed, which at least entails that all those within the new covenant community are by definition those who have experienced regeneration and a heart full of forgiveness of sin. So even if you go to the Old Testament and read Jeremiah 31, what Jeremiah says the new covenant would be is the law written in their hearts. They would be a regenerate people. But covenant theology says you can be in the covenant, in the covenant community, but also not be one of the elect. So you have the visible church and the invisible church. You've got people who are church members but never did uh, believe and trust in Jesus Christ. So that's why they have confirmations and that kind of thing, because you get to age and they say, well, do you believe um, what you were baptized into? Well, the, they can't remember being baptized, but they can say, well, yes, I confess that I believe what um, my baptism represents at an early age, and they, and they confirm them. But again, all this stuff rides on whether or not covenant theology is biblical. <clears throat> Now, in the 1600s, in the late 1600s, the, the Baptists over in London, they were being persecuted. And they were being called all various different types of cults. And, and there were some Baptists in Europe during that time who, who wouldn't believe like we believe. And in fact, they were rebel rousers, and they called all kinds of, of trouble. And that's no different today. Just because somebody's got Baptists hanging on the door doesn't mean that we believe that they hold to the truth, right? So that, that's common today. You could drive probably not very far and find a Baptist church where you would walk in and sit down for a little while and say, well, I don't think that's very Baptist. That doesn't sound like uh, the, the doctrines of the Scriptures. Well, it was the same way back then. But what the enemies of the Baptists would do is they'd take the worst group that they could find that dunk people under the water, and then they would say, well, this is what they all believe. They are all rebel rousers. They're all um, violent. They all don't, none of them believe in the sufficiency of scripture. None of them, they, they all um, are either lawless or, um, you know, Armenian or whatever the case might be. Well, the, these group of Baptists said, no, we don't believe like that. We hold to biblical truths. And they said, in fact, we believe in the sovereignty of God and salvation. We believe that um, whenever you're saved, that, that God guides us in his law. We are not lawless. And so they wrote a confession to show everybody this is what we believe. And so in 1644, they wrote a confession. And this enumerates all the things that we believe. But we, don't, we don't believe that God speaks to us in dreams and visions. And, and we don't believe that... Uh, you're supposed to rebel against the government and all these types of things. So they wrote a pretty good confession of faith in 1644. Well, later on and, um, in 1689, to further uh, mitigate the 
persecution, they took the Westminster Confession of Faith, which was uh, the Presbyterian Confession, and they baptized it. So they took that confession, which teaches covenant theology, and so we're going to take that confession and we're going to make it a Baptist confession. So instead of um, baptizing babies, we'll change that part of it and talk about baptizing believers. Well, the problem with that is covenant theology, baby baptism is baked in the cake of covenant theology. And if you take that away, then you don't really have that um, quote-unquote reformed doctrine any longer. That's why a lot of Presbyterians object to those, the 1689 guys calling themselves Reformed Baptists. They say you can't be Reformed and be a Baptist because infant baptism is Reformed doctrine. And so that's why I don't say, I wouldn't say I was Reformed or anything such as that because I don't believe in that, in that co- I don't believe in covenant theology is, is found in the scriptures as, as, they, as they taught. Well, the Reformed Baptists, in 1689, and even up today, are try, they try to find that middle ground between um, what the Bible says about baptism and still hold it to that covenant of, of grace, and, and they confuse the issue, and they make it even worse in some re- regards. Now, you know, I, I'm not speaking ill of them. They, they, they believe very closely um, to a lot of the things that we believe, but... But what they do is they take that covenant system and modify it a little bit. But they still have to hang on to the church in the Old Testament um, and and Israel, and many of them in Israel and church unity, um, all millennialism. There's a lot of stuff that has to go along with this this belief. So what I want to do tonight is not say, let's start with our confession. Let's start with the confession. Or let's start with the framework. Or let's start with all the... Let's just go to the scriptures. And let's go to the scriptures and see what the scriptures teach us about baptism. There's a, there's a term that people are using now to... As a pejorative. Uh, a biblicist is what they would call us tonight. They say, well, you're a, bit, you're a biblicist. You, if you can't find it, spelled out exactly in scripture then you don't believe it well if I can't find it in the scripture and it's not taught in the scripture and the only way I can find it is go and lay a framework on top of the scripture in order for me to teach that well I don't want to be a part of it I'd be fine with being called a biblicist if that's what they wanted to call me because if we can't find it in the scripture and I'm not just talking about the word I'm not talking about going to word search and looking covenant of grace and trying to find that. But I'm talking about the, the system itself. If I'm going to lay something on top of the scripture in order to, to arrive at my theology, because you can't search up total depravity and find that there either, or Trinity or any other such things. But what I'm saying is, if we're going to say, I'm going to interpret the Bible through the lens of something outside of the scripture, then you better be sure that that lens um, is according to the scripture. And so I think that if we just look at the Bible and what the Bible says about baptism, the examples, where we find it first, what it means, what it signifies, 
I think the only conclusion that one could come to is believer's baptism. And I don't think that you could take the Scriptures without having known anything about covenant theology and then come to that conclusion from the Scriptures. And so that, that's what I want to do. And this is why I'm a Baptist. I'm a Baptist because I believe that's what the Bible teaches, this, this truth about believer's baptism. Well, let's look at baptism's beginnings, first of all. In Mark chapter 1, in verse number 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in the prophets, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John did baptize in the wilderness and preached the baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. So here we have the beginnings of baptism. You don't, it's not in the Old Testament. The covenant theologists or covenant theologians will say that John was practicing Old Testament baptism. But you show me if you can find Old Testament baptism, I'll be happy to happy to know because I never can find it because it's not there. You can go and read Jewish histories that were written a couple hundred years after the time of Christ that said that the the the, the Jews practiced a washing of proselytes, but you can't find that in the Bible. You can find the Jews saying that it was there. You can't find it in the Scripture, and they won't find it in the Scripture. They said it's one of their practices. You know, the, the Jews did a lot of things that, as far as their tradition went, there weren't in the Scriptures. So, baptism's beginnings came with John. God sent John, and he sent him to baptize. It would be a very curious thing indeed for John the Baptist to take up a Jewish tradition not found in the scriptures, change its meaning, and then Christ received that tradition of men and not of God, especially since Christ condemns the tradition of men, and then co-opt that tradition in order to change to something else. If so, why did the Jews want it? If it was something that was already done, why did the Jews come to him to be baptized? Who was John baptizing in the wilderness if this was something the Jews already practiced? If it was Old Testament proselytite washings, then why were the Jews the only one being baptized? And if it was Old Testament proselytite washings, why was it that Jesus Christ came to be baptized? And if it was Old Testament proselyte washings and John um, changed it, why did Christ change it yet again from one thing to the other? Right, none of that makes sense if you just stop and think about it. Why, how, does, how does baptism change from whatever it was supposedly in the Old Testament to whatever John made it to to whatever we have today? That's three times it's changed and the scripture doesn't tell us 
about why in any of those instances. It seems very curious that the scripture would be silent on three different kinds of baptisms in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the scriptures without saying anything about it. And how much literature is written in the New Testament about circumcision and how Paul would say, well, circumcision is nothing. Why? Because that was an Old Testament practice. And so if there was an Old Testament practice that was changed into the New Testament, you would think that, that there would be some time that the, the apostles would explain the difference and why one was superior and why one went away. But that's not the case. And if, let's look in the book of Luke, chapter number 2. And if circumcision or baptism took the place of circumcision, and there's continuity between the two, then why were these Jews who were circumcised also baptized? Why, why is that the case? If, if circumcision and baptism are the same, in the sense that they're tokens of the same covenant, then why do you have two different things? So Jesus, look in Luke chapter 2 and verse 21. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. So Jesus was circumcised on the eighth day. Now look in chapter 3, in verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, and the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape, like a dove upon him, and a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So in two chapters, just a few verses, you know, one page apart in my Bible, Jesus was circumcised, and then he was baptized. If they're tokens of the same covenant that accomplished the same thing, then why was Jesus circumcised and baptized? Well, what they'll say is, well, Jesus didn't have Christian baptism. And they'll say, well, Jesus had Old Testament Jewish baptism. Well, what's an Old Testament Jewish baptism? Fine, show me in the scripture what Old Testament Jewish baptism is, and then, then we can discuss. But if you can't show me from the scriptures that there's an Old Testament Jewish baptism, that that's what Jesus submitted to, then we can't go any further. Because that means that, that that supposition that you've made has a dead end. Now, I can tell you why Jesus was baptized, which we'll look at shortly. But if, if you are telling me this is an Old Testament Jewish baptism, then we have to know what the significance is of that is. But I don't think that's what it is. What happens is when they say that it wasn't Christian, that means Jesus' baptism is different than ours, and so was the apostles. But this is more reading into the text than receiving truth from the text. Doug Wilson, um, a popular uh, Presbyterian pastor out in Idaho, sa says in one of his works that if Paul was married and had sons, that he could have chosen to have his babies baptized or circumcised, either one. He said that option was available for the Jews of his time. 
that they could have been circumcised or the babies could have been baptized, whatever he chose. And it didn't work the same. Now you say, why, why do you care? Well, I, one reason is um, Doug Wilson is very big into um, politics. And he's got a big movement that he was on NBC News not too long ago. Um, he's got a big movement among people because he stands up against government encroachment. He was one that spoke against mandates and that kind of thing. And there are a lot of Baptists who listen to him and agree with him about politics. And a lot of them are leaving um, Baptist ranks and, and joining his church. And he welcomes them with open arms. Um, but, but he is very extreme, but he's a consistent Presbyterian because he believes things like this. Uh, they give uh, infant communion. So uh, not only do they baptize their babies, their babies take the Lord's Supper. Um, I don't know... I don't know how they do that. I don't know if they. I don't know what they do with the bread for little infants, but they do. So th there is danger uh, to this. Well, let's think a little bit further. So, if the apostles were circumcised, but they also were baptized. Now, if John's baptism was different than "quote unquote" Christian baptism then why in Acts chapter number 1, in verse 22, did the apostles say, we need to find somebody to replace Judas, say beginning, we need somebody that was from beginning the baptism of John until that same day was taken up. One. So wh why was the baptism of John significant in being an apostle? Nowhere do you read of the apostles being baptized a second time with the so-called Christian baptism. Another curious thing, that the, the apostles, who Christ used as his ambassadors, who wrote the New Testament, who were the pastors of the first churches, the missionaries of the first churches, were not even baptized. If that's the case, Paul was the only apostle who was ever baptized with Christian baptism. A very curious thing indeed. It also presents a problem when confronted with Paul's instructions that there's only one baptism in Ephesians 4 or 5. There's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Unless you believe covenant theology, then you believe there's two baptisms, maybe three baptisms. No, there's one baptism. And it came into existence when you find baptism first being practiced and that is with John the Baptist. It was a new thing. That's why people were curious about what he was doing. That's why even some of the Pharisees uh, were being baptized. And that's why the priest came out to find out what he was doing. Because it was a new thing. It wasn't an old thing. If it was an old thing, no one would have paid any attention to him. It was a new thing. Jesus authorized the apostles... In, in, in first in John 4 to baptize where Jesus um, it says in John 4 um, 1 when therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus had made and baptized more disciples than John though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples he left Judea and departed into Galilee 
So um, Jesus commissioned his disciples to baptize. And then um, Matthew, um, you know you know what Matthew says in the Great Commission, go ye therefore to all nations. And what we're supposed to do, we're supposed to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So Jesus commissioned the apostles to baptize. And then he commissions the church to baptize. And so there in the book of Acts, where Peter says we need to find someone who's been with us from the baptism of John, someone who has been with us this whole time, um, they, they, why was that? They needed to find someone who had um, been with them from this, this same time to carry on the work commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ. So if that covenant theology system is correct, baptism not only replaces circumcision, but it also replaces baptism. So that doesn't make a lot of sense. The baptism replaces baptism, which also replaces circumcision. If there was an Old Testament baptism, then what was the point of it, and what was the point of circumcision? And if there was both, then why doesn't circumcision also carry over in some regard? But no, baptism started with John, according to what we can find in the Bible. Jesus and the apostles were both baptized by John, but they were also circumcised. And Jesus really was the last circumcision that that really mattered to anything. Because he fulfilled um, all the types and what that represented in himself, in, in his um, death, burial, and resurrection. And, I, and when Jesus rose from the dead, no one ever had to be circumcised ever again. Jesus was the last significant circumcision in the scripture. He didn't change it. He put an end to it. It's not needed anymore. And so you have Jesus really, and so if you think about it in the book of Luke, you have Jesus with the last significant circumcision because he is the fulfillment of all those Old Testament Passages, and then you have in in the next chapter John baptizing Jesus with really the the first major significant baptism in the Bible. It's not being passed off from one to another, making continuity. One is ending, and the other is beginning. And so, because these two things are different, when you find people in the New Testament being baptized, if you just look at the, the scripture data, you find that it's for a different purpose. Every example of people being baptized are those who profess Christ. You don't find examples of people being baptized who did not profess Christ. I didn't say that they were all saved, because Judas was baptized, of course, and, and you had false believers, professors being baptized. But you don't find people who do not profess Christ being baptized. Now, why do people start baptizing babies? Well, listen to what the Catechism of the Catholic Church says. Born with a fallen humanity tainted by, or born with a fallen human nature tainted by original sin, children also have need of the new birth in baptism to be freed from the power of darkness and brought into the realm of freedom of the children of God. The sheer gratuitousness of grace of salvation is manifest in infant baptism. 
the church and the parents would deny a child the priceless grace of becoming a child of God were they not to confer baptism shortly after birth. That's why babies are baptized. It's because the error of baptismal regeneration um, came and began being taught, and then, and then it's a foundational doctrine of Roman Catholicism that baptism is a sacrament, that it brings the grace of salvation, as they say in their own words, the grace of salvation, and to deny a child baptism is to deny them the grace of God becoming born again. Now that's where this doctrine comes from. That, because the covenant theologians say, well, this is an ancient doctrine. The medieval churches taught this, and they taught this way back. Yeah, and this is what they taught. And then you have a whole group of people coming out of that system who have been baptized as babies, and then you have this being fleshed out into a framework by those theologians who were baptized as babies and continued to baptize babies. And they say, well, how are we going to justify this? Because we can't justify it from the Bible. They say, well, we don't believe that baptism saves people, but we are going to continue to do that. So this framework was constructed. So every scriptural example in the book of Acts, in our text that we read, they said, what do we do? Jesus says, or Paul said, <laughs> Peter, let me get that straight. So in the book of Acts, in our text, Peter told them what to do. He said, repent and then be baptized. And that's what happened. The they didn't go around baptizing everyone they could get their hands on. It was those that received it. Because it says in Acts 2.41, Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Right? Those that received his word. So Peter preached to them, and he preached the law. He said, you're guilty. You killed the Lord of glory. The Messiah came, and you murdered him. You're guilty. You called for, for his blood to be on you and your children and their generations. You cried out for God to curse you and to curse your children. And when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. Because Peter preached the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures, showed that Jesus was the Christ, that they had a hand in putting him to death, that they called out a blood curse on themselves and their generations. And they heard this and said, what, what are we supposed to do? We are guilty. What do we do? Oh, God, forgive us. What do we do? And Peter said, repent. So they're convicted by the preaching of the law. They know that they're sinners. They know they deserve the wrath of God. Peter says, repent and be baptized for remission of sins. Ch turn. Change your mind. Change your way of thinking. Change your understanding. Turn from your, your wicked ways and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you can't repent without having faith in Jesus. You can't turn 
to Christ without trusting in Christ. And you can't truly rest in Christ without turning away from everything else. So those faith and repentance go hand in hand. So he tells them to repent, to believe, to trust in Christ, and be baptized. Well, why did Peter say be baptized? Because what did Jesus say? Go into all the world and baptize. Well, for remission of sins. So does that mean that we're, we're baptized to, in order to obtain remission of sins? Well, you read that same phrase in Mark and Luke, um, connecting baptism and the remission of sins in that same sentence. But is that what that's teaching? No, because I, I jotted these down. I'm just going to read them. Jesus said in the Lord's Supper, this is the blood of the New Testament which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So here's an ordinance that pictured the shed blood of Christ for the remission of sins. Not that that brings about the remission of sins, but he said it is his blood that brings the remission of sins. Um, Acts 10.43 says, To him all the prophets witness that through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive the remission of sins. So here we have Acts 10 telling us that it is by faith that we receive the remission of sins. Then in chapter 13, verse 38. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him all that believe are justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, forgiveness of sins is the same Greek word as remission of sins. And then at the end of the book, Acts 26, 18, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan and the God that they may receive the forgiveness of sins, same Greek phrase, and the inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Jesus said the Spirit of the Lord is upon him because he is anointed to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, or remission, it's the same word, deliverance, remission, forgiveness, and the recovering of the sight of the blind, to set at liberty, liberty is the same Greek word, to them that are bruised. He is to preach the gospel, liberty, freedom, remission. In the book of Hebrews, without the shedding blood, there is no remission. Where there is remission of these, there is no more offering for sin. Paul said in, in uh, Romans 3, 5, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare the righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Colossians 1, 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, same Greek word. Also, Ephesians 1, 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. So the whole New Testament tells us we are saved by grace through faith. That we receive the remissions of sin through the blood of Jesus Christ. It is the shedding of blood that remits sin, not baptism. So why did Peter say, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins? Well, baptism is commanded of God. And whenever you repent and trust in Christ, you receive Christ, you follow his commands, and you are be, to be baptized. The pattern in the command is to repent, to trust, and be baptized. 
not to receive the remission of sins, but on account of the remission of sins. To, re- to believe and trust in Christ is to receive the remission of sins. But to be baptized, you're doing this on account of what you've already received. And that is what the baptism signifies. It signifies what Christ has already done for us. And so whenever a similar, a parallel instance happens in Acts 16, in the, the Philippian jailer, he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized, he and all of his straight away. Same thing. Law was preached. Conviction of sin. What, what must we do? Believe and be saved. And then what happened? He was baptized. Now how do you reckon he, he found out he needed to be baptized? Well, Paul told him. He told him what he needed to do. And then what did he do? He was baptized, just like in Acts chapter 2, in verse 41, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Not they that gladly received his word and then, and then their babies and then everyone else and their slaves and, and their employees, like circumcision would have done, but it was all those that gladly received the word were gladly baptized. So throughout Scripture... And that's enough because you have um, 3,000, there's 3,000 plus however many was in that guy's house examples of believers' baptism. And not one example of uh, baby baptism. So I think 3,000 is a pretty good instance of uh, examples of, of believers' baptism. Well, what does baptism signify? And... Um, There's three things that I want to look at real quick before we close. What does it signify? If it signifies something that circumcision signifies, then you could say, well, we can connect it. But you remember baptism signified things about the land, about being um, in the lineage of Abraham, because Ishmael was baptized, but he wasn't of the the chosen, chosen seed. All Abraham's slaves were baptized. Or, or, or circumcised, rather. They were all circumcised, but they weren't a part of that chosen seed. And it kept getting narrowed and narrowed until Moses takes it up. But it signified something particular about being Jewish. Um, and it signified um, something in particular there. But baptism signifies something else. In Romans chapter number 6, and verse number 1, baptism signifies that in Christ we're dead to sin and we live with him. Christ was baptized, not because he was a proselyte, to a Gentile proselyte, but he was baptized in fulfilling righteousness in what he was going to do for us. Know you not that so many of us were baptized into the Jesus Christ, Romans 6, 3, were baptized into his death. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we walk in newness of life. For if we've been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. So, baptism signifies our union with Jesus Christ. 
we're not united to Christ by our baptism, but it signifies the reality. It is a picture of what has truly happened, that we are united to Christ. And as Christ died for our sins, we die to our sins. And as Christ rose from the dead, we rise from the waters of baptism to walk in newness of life. It, it pictures a reality of what truly happened. Paul connects this, I think, in Ephesians chapter 4. Now, this doesn't say anything about baptism, but it's the same principle because he talks about the old man and, and so forth. But So in Ephesians chapter 4, in verse 25, this helps us to see um, what it signifies. So Romans 6 talks about dying to Christ or dying in Christ and in in the baptism being planted and so forth. Um, Ephesians 4, 22, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, being uh, according to the deceitful love, so be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man, which is, is God created in righteousness and true holiness. So here we have our union with Christ, that, that we, we die to the old man, and we rise from the, the waters picturing a new creation. We are new creatures in Christ. We're united to him. And whenever we're baptized, we're saying, we're saying this is what Christ has done for me. We, the old man is gone. We're new creatures in Christ. Our baptism testifies what Christ has done for us. That sprinkling water on a little baby does not testify these things. It cannot testify putting off the old man. It cannot testify in dying to sin. It cannot testify of walking in newness of life. It cannot be a declaration, this is what Christ has done for me. It cannot be a declaration that, that I am now one with Christ. I am now uh, uh, united with his, with his body to, to live and to serve him. Every instance of baptism in the New Testament signified a, a union with Jesus Christ. So much so that it was shorthand for the work that Christ did for us. And I believe that is why you find those instances of, the, of baptism for the remission of sin, like Peter said, because it was shorthand for what Christ has done. So this picture signifies what the gospel is teaching. That by faith you receive life and you're made a new creature. So whenever Peter told him to be baptized, he said in verse 40 of Acts 2, and with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. Die to this, this old way of doing things, this ungodly and wicked generation, and walk in newness of life. And they gladly received that word. And, and denied this ungodly generation. And they no longer walked with the way they used to walk. They never walked in the old ways anymore. They received his word and were baptized and were added unto the church 3,000 souls. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And just like we looked at this morning, that fellowship, how do you have fellowship? in receiving Christ. They had fellowship with the Peter now and the apostles, and they had fellowship with the Trinity. 
this fellowship was not because they're now covenant members in the covenant community with them and their babies. Everything that you read here, there was fear come upon every soul. They believed and had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and, and, and continued daily with one another in one accord, breaking bread, singleness of heart, gladness of mind, praising God. All these things are the works and the action of a regenerate people. This is the new covenant promise that Jeremiah talked about. Not a mixed community of, of visible and invisible, saved and lost, um, hard-hearted and, and believing. But no, you have a community of people in the new covenant regenerated with the signification of baptism being united with Christ. Of what Christ has done. This is polar opposite in many regards to what you find in the Old Testament. I might overstate it by saying polar opposite, but it's very different, isn't it? It's very different than the Old Testament. It's very different from what you read in Israel, where half the time most of the people didn't even believe. And half the time they were all lawless and rebels, and, and God would bless them, and they'd murmur and, and worship false gods and all these different things. This is what it looks like in the New Testament. This is the difference here. It's believer's baptism. And so, yes, you look at the word. The word means immersion. It means that you go underwater and come back up. And sprinkling doesn't do that. I mean, that's one reason why I wouldn't be, want to be sprinkled, because the Bible, that's not what the word baptism means. Another, and then you go and find all the examples of the saints being baptized as believers. And you find the church baptizing believers. And you find the significant significance of the union with Christ and putting off the works of the flesh in believers' baptism. So you got two options. You can go with the, 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 the theology and you have to take those special glasses and put them on and then look at the Bible through those covenant theology glasses and then everywhere you see baptism you have to try to make that connection back to the Old Testament and Abraham and circumcision and all those types of things and flatten it out and spiritualize it and press it down and shake it and all, all those types of things and then it all fits together very well. Or we can take the scripture and say, well, let's, let's see where baptism starts in the Scripture. Let's see the examples of baptism in the Scripture. Let's see what it signifies in the Scripture. Let's see who was baptized and why they were baptized and who was doing the baptizing. Let's see what the Bible says about circumcision. And let's see who was circumcised and why and all those types of things. And you just compare what the Scripture says. I'll take the latter. I'll take, I'll start, I'll take the Bible. And if that makes me a biblicist, well, then... Well, that's fine. I don't care to be called that. But uh, the fact remains, the Bible teaches believers' baptism, and, and I'm happy to, to walk away with the Bible, and I know that you are too. And so I, I'm thankful that God's made me a Baptist. And I'm not ashamed of that, and, and uh, happy to be so. And I pray this little study um, gives... The, the goal of it was to give a strength in our position and see the falsehood of the other position 
And by seeing that and the biblical side of it, just to be uh, all the more strengthened uh, in being a Baptist.